Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like, like really good whiskey. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. A few days ago, I was on a 600-acre former dairy farm in the lovely little town of Shoreham, Vermont, talking to a ski industry veteran, Jason Newell. Jason is a lifelong skier, former racer, and literally spent half his life working at Rossignol. And in his last role there, he served as the director of marketing for the Rossignol Group North America. But at the beginning of 2019, Jason embarked on a new adventure and shifted from the world of skiing to the world of whiskey. I happen to be a huge fan of both. And in the past couple of months, Jason has been adamant that I needed to get out to Vermont to come check out the Whistlepig Farm and Distillery, which is located on that 600-acre former dairy farm that I was just telling you about. And I can now say, the place is truly incredible. And I kept finding myself describing it to friends as being like Willy Wonka's factory, but way better. And I'm not kidding. Anyway, I had a great time with Jason walking the farm grounds, asking a million questions about the distilling process, tasting a range of whiskeys from White Dog, or White Pig as Whistlepig folks like to call it, which is whiskey direct from the still, to some exceptionally good 15-year rise, and some experimental blends too, to feeding apples to Mortimer Jr. the pig, to staying up till all hours of the night talking about skiing and the ski industry and whiskey and history and pretty much everything. So I wanted to provide at least a taste of some of the things that Jason and I discussed, and I finally got him to agree to record a conversation about his racing days, about working with Rossignol, taping candied Thovex to a gondola, and about his new work with Whistlepig. So here it is, my conversation with Jason Newell. Well, I am here in Shoreham, Vermont, and feel like I've just spent the last two days doing little other than talking with Jason Newell. And so finally, I was like, you know what? We just need to record this because we've covered a lot of interesting ground. Jason has led a pretty interesting life, has had a fairly recent career change. So I was like, let's share this story. So Jason, thanks for agreeing to do this. (laughs) (laughs) That's my pleasure. I'm honored. (laughs) We're going to cover this sort of in three parts, racing, Rossignol, and whiskey. And so let's just do this sequentially. We're going to talk about the early racing days. Where did you grow up, Jason? Uh, I grew up in South Paris, Maine, which is western central Maine. Uh, really in the shadow of Sunday River and Mount Abram. So my mom grew up in the real part of Maine, right? Like way north, way north of you. You're basically a city slicker. True, true story. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is from Lincoln, Maine, which Jason gave the appropriate and totally insulting uh, immediate response that real Mainers have when they hear about Lincoln. Anyway, we're not even going to say it. We're not going to even dignify that old name. but Let's uh, just say it rhymes with Lincoln. <laughs> it does. And so you didn't start skiing. I mean, you've made this entire life really in kind of around skiing, but you didn't start skiing right away. Right. You know, I, uh, 
as a youth in Maine, as any good Mainer will tell you, you know, at 10, for your 10 year birthday, you get a chainsaw and a shotgun. So I spent a lot of time in the woods uh, wandering around. And a lot of that was on Nordic skis. Um, so I used them as honestly transportation. We would ski to our friend's house. I would ski to go rabbit hunting. And, you know, you get pretty good on Nordic skis. Um, but I didn't start alpine skiing until I was about 12 years old. And I, I lived literally 10 miles from Mount Abram. So that was kind of my first foray, and I fell in love with it right away, and I knew that it would be a big part of my life moving forward. So when did you start skiing, and then when did you start racing? So I started skiing at age you know, 12 years old, uh, a couple little family vacations. We went up with our cousins, and then I realized, wow, this is so close to my home, I can do it all the time. So quite quickly, uh, you know, I was a stick and ball athlete growing up, and had pretty good, you know, spatial awareness and dynamic balance. So, uh, you know, I use those terms now. I didn't know what that was when I was 12 years old, obviously. <laughs> um, but I started skiing and uh, had some great coaches and just chased a bunch of the older kids that were great racers around. And next thing I knew, I was a schoolboy champion in Maine and wanted to make it a big part of my life. So it happened relatively quickly for me. Schoolboy champion of me. It was yeah, they called, called it, it. They called it schoolboy racing back in the day, and it was a combination of slalom, GS, and Nordic, and you get points in each category, and the teams would be scored in each category. So that's kind of how it started. Then I tried going to some of the club races, and I was I was good, but there was kids that were much better, and I knew I was never going to make it to the World Cup. I had a short-lived dream of someday making it to the World Cup, but I quickly realized that was never going to happen. And so I quickly kind of transitioned there uh, from, you know, racing to instruction and coaching. I actually took a year off after high school and taught at Mount Abram with a mentor of mine, Rick Dow. And spending 100 days on snow uh, at age 18 years old with a great instructor coach. Uh, and then he introduced me to Tom Reynolds and Dr. Roche that were running a really unique program at the University of Maine at Farmington. They had a ski industries program and it, it felt like a perfect fit. So I enrolled in the University of Maine Farmington and you know, away we went. What was your best event? Uh, I was, I was probably a better GS skier. And then once I got, uh, the, once I had the opportunity to ski, uh, super G and downhill being, you know, six, four and 220 pounds, uh, and not really having much fear at that point in my life. Um, you know, I was a much better speed event skier. And then on the instructing side, did you feel like you were particularly good at instructing in one of the disciplines over the others? No, I think I was probably equally terrible at all of them early on. So yeah, uh, you know, at UMF, the program was you'd spend your morning in classes and then three days a week we were on the hill with Tom Reynolds, who was an incredible coach, very disciplined, a US ski team coach, had some great successes with some big names early on. And he wanted to make that, you know, more of a curriculum. So we spent a lot of time on snow uh, with, with coach going through all of the drills. And that really made me understand kind of the biomechanics of skiing and understand it on a level that I previously had not. So really kind of tuned me into my own movements. And that made me a much better skier quickly. You know, 100 days at the loaf probably did more for my skiing in the early days than anything. So we go from racing to some instructing, and then what's the what's the next step here? Yeah, so for me, you know, as an instructor, there is this there's this thing, uh, PSIA, the governing body of ski instruction in North America, or in the U.S., um, has a thing called the National Demo Team, and you know, in the 
late 80s and early 90s, those individuals that were on the team, they were kind of rock stars. They made more money than most pro skiers did. Um, and it was a thing. So I set my sights on that. I tried out for the team in 1992. I just missed the cut. And it's only every four years. So, you know, once I missed the cut there, I was, you know, wondering what I was going to do for four years. And that's when the Rosignol opportunity came about. How did this Rosignol opportunity come about? You know, I was a young instructor and, uh, you know, a fairly good one at Sugarloaf. And again, because of the great coaching and the team that was around me there. And so the Rosignol rep, uh, I grew up skiing on another brand and the Rosignol rep approached me and said, hey, I got a great opportunity for you. Would you like to be a tech rep? And I figured out what that meant. And I said, heck yeah, driving around New England in a van, selling and, you know, giving skis and doing pro nights, it seemed, seemed perfect. Uh, so that was really my entry into Rosy. And then quite quickly, uh, you know, based on some changes that happened within the company, I was pretty young and I took over a sales territory in New England. Uh, so I was pretty young uh, sales rep for Rosignol and had a, had a great run as a sales rep. And then an opportunity presented itself where I could go in-house and work in product development. So I took a job as a product manager in Burlington, Vermont, and moved from Maine over to Burlington and was working with a great team uh, of mentors at Rosignol, and I kind of cut my teeth in, in product development with those individuals. When you are now the quote-unquote product manager for Rosignol, what categories are you now working in? Right. Well, I started out uh, managing uh, all of the rental products, our pole category, and our binding category. That was when Rosignol had access to all of Look's technology, and we purchased a company called Gatesay, which, you know, for any of you out there that are, you know, old, as old as I am, you remember the Gatesay brand. They had incredible patents and some wonderful technology. So we'd purchased that company and we rolled all those patents together with all of the Look patents, and we built these, you know, kind of new profiles of, you know, step in bindings and, you know, different toe pieces and heel pieces just to hit all the price points. And I worked closely with a ski product manager at that time, you know, tuning and being a technician and, you know, would take care of the magazine tests and prepping the skis for all of that stuff and all the intros for pros. And, you know, really that's where it started out. And then again, with some more transitions, we took over the rest of the categories and really it was skis, boots, bindings, poles. Um, but quickly we realized that was too much. So we brought in another couple product managers and broke it out into different disciplines. And at that point I'd transitioned more to the sports marketing side. So my, my tenure as a product manager was probably about five years and then a transition into sports marketing, which was just really management of all of the athletes, photographers in the early days of, you know, athlete placement with, some great partners, you know, TGR, MSP, Warren Miller, just making sure that our athletes had a place to do their thing. As an athlete manager, I've got to think that lends itself to some pretty good stories. Yeah, there's uh, <laughs> innumerable stories, most of which probably wouldn't it, it probably wouldn't benefit anyone uh, for me to share here just now. Our, just our listeners. Yeah, just your listeners. You know, a couple of interesting ones for me. Schroeder Baker, uh, Jackson Hole athlete back in the day, we were going into Canada to do a photo shoot at Snowwater Lodge just outside of Nelson. And we had a team, we were gonna shoot a TV show and, and shoot some stuff on the new products. And Schroeder was all gung-ho. We were going to BC to you know heli-ski and do a photo shoot and film a TV show with uh, Bob Lagasa, who used to do a lot of that stuff. 
And we got to the border and everybody, you know, kind of passed muster except Schroeder. They had a real issue with his passport. We thought maybe it was out of date or, you know, something wasn't quite right. And then we we realized that Schroeder was not going to go into Canada with us. And so we're in the middle of nowhere, uh, BC, actually at the border in Madeline. And uh, we had to leave Schroeder at the border. And he said, what am I supposed to do? I'm like, you're on your own, pal. So we bought him a 12 pack of PBR, a TV dinner, and we left him at one of the worst roach motels I've ever seen. And at that time we were able to get somebody to come uh, pick Schroeder up and take him back to Jackson. What we failed to realize is all of his gear, skis, boots, bindings, clothes, the whole enchilada was in a truck that was already way up the road and was not gonna come back to the border. So Schroeder made his way back to Jackson during an epic cycle and had zero gear. So lesson learned. I know there's also a Candide story. Yeah, that was that was pretty funny. Uh, so when we first introduced the scratch ski, Candide, obviously Candide the cat was one of our top athletes. So we went to Steamboat and we were gonna do a photo shoot there. They had a, uh, some decent park jumps at the time. And the scratch graphic at that time, if I remember, had a um, caution tape style uh, graphic on it. And so we'd made a bunch of two inch wide, basically ski tape, not that strong. It was cellophane tape that had the scratch logo on it. And somehow uh, David Bouvier, international product manager, team manager, thought it'd be a great idea to tape Candide to the outside of the steamboat gondola. And needless to say, we didn't have permits for any of this, nor did they even know we were really on the hill. So we literally taped Candide to the outside of a gondola. We used about four rolls of tape and he was just stuck to the gondola with scotch tape, you know, effectively. And the whole time I had my fingers crossed just praying that Mountain Ops didn't fire up that Gandhi for any reason, because for sure Candide would have made it halfway back down to town and then plummeted to an early demise, which would have been not good for business. So I want to hear a little more about how much pushback there was from Candide when he's being taped to a gondola. Was he in a state where he could fight back? No, I'll say this about Candide. Candide was always good to go. He would, <laughs> he would draw the line. He's very calculated. He would do almost anything. And, you know, we've seen what Candide did, you know, at X Games and then later in life creating some of the most interesting content I think Snow had ever seen. But Candide was always good to go. He'd look at the situation. He'd rub his chin a little bit and look at it. But Candide was always ready to do, you know, whatever was necessary. And to him... It didn't. It probably didn't seem that scary. I'm sure he thought if he fell off the gondola, um, he he would he would be fine. He'd probably stomp the landing and right. then, you know go from there. Any other athlete stories? You know, it could it could get pretty dark here pretty quick. There was some stuff. Um, we we threw a pretty epic snowboard party once uh, for the team, and our uh, the last thing I remember was they lit a couch on fire and they couldn't find the fire extinguisher, so they were going to try and throw it out the window. <laughs> Uh, but then they realized they were in a hotel and the windows didn't open. Uh, so that, that was that was an expensive hotel bill for sure. <laughs> Smoke damage, Wait, burn couch. It was you didn't name any names on that one. No, I think that's <laughs> to protect the innocent. Uh-huh. OK. Wow. That's a good one. There's one more interesting one. Back in the day, there was a, an athlete, you probably know his name. He was a pro mountain biker, pro skier. His name was Mike Hopkins, and he was just an incredible guy. We're in the interior of BC doing a photo shoot, and he built this incredible road gap. 
but we were in the middle of an epic cycle. And I kid you not, it had probably snowed six to eight feet at least in the previous five days. And that was on top of, you know, a lot, a lot, a great base. So the snow was deep and soft and Hopkins absolutely sent this road gap and flew way past the tranny and ended up, you know, hitting a bomb hole, probably conservatively a hundred feet down the hill and he disappeared. And we knew the snow was deep. So we were scrambling to try and get to him and we didn't have sleds at that time. So everyone's scrambling, but you're, we were wallowing in snow that was neck deep on me. You literally couldn't move. And we were very concerned because now it had been 15, 20, 30 seconds. And Mike was, he was deep, disappeared. We, you couldn't see anything. So uh, even the guides that were coming down from the top of the road were really struggling to get to him. And one guide laid down and rolled like a log roll and rolled to him in a matter of seconds and extricated him from this hole. And Mike was, you know, and this is no exaggeration, he was probably 15 feet deep. And so, you know, but in a few more minutes, he said he couldn't breathe at that time. So, you know, good on the guides for having that kind of technique and awareness to be able to get to get to an individual like that. But it was it was scary for a moment, but it all ended all ended well. Maybe we ought to get back to teaching the log roll. In deep snow, if you need to move around and you need to get somewhere quickly, I'll tell you, especially downhill, it's really effective. Um, but you just disperse your body weight and, you know, you can get there quite quickly. It was interesting. I'd used it since then, you know, with great success. Well, those are all good stories. I have to say, I think the burning couch one is actually my favorite, which I did not see coming given that I had heard the Candide story. But I, I think the burning couch wins. Yeah, surprise and delight, right? <laughs> I love the scramble looking for the fire extinguisher, and then they realized there was not one, and they just had torched this couch. <laughs> At that time, the snowboard athletes, it was insane because they were making crazy money. It was in the early days at snowboard. And, you know, it's when at the SIA show, all the snowboarders were getting kicked out of the the venue. And it was, you know, it, it was a bit chaotic in the early days. But these guys lived and acted like rock stars. And it was pretty awesome to witness. So you moved on from being an athlete manager to other aspects of marketing specifically for Rosignol or for the Rosignol group? Yeah. So in the early days, uh, when I first took over the director marketing role, it was just for Rosignol. And at that time, it was just skis, boots, poles, and bindings, Nordic and snowboard. But then that quickly with merger and acquisition and consolidation uh, and all the things that happened. At the end of the day, you know, uh, 10 years later, I was the, you know, director of marketing for the Rosignol group, which really was uh, Rosignol, Dinastar, Lang, Look, really all of the brands. It, that was a pretty special time because there was a lot going on, but what an incredible group. So this career span, with Rosignol spanned, was it 25 years? Yeah, just shy of 25 years. I was actually like 24 years and six months, huh. if you, you want to get accurate. So in that time, talk to me a little bit about as you think back over that quarter of a century, wow, that makes you sound old. I'm super old. What strikes you as the one or two of the most significant developments or changes that you saw over a, you know, a portion of three decades? I think for me, the, uh, the late 80s to 2000 was a, a pretty amazing time on a lot of levels. Prior to that, there had, hadn't been a lot of 
technological evolution. Skis were long and straight. You know, people were skiing on 195 to 215 centimeter skis. They were 65 millimeters underfoot, 63 millimeters underfoot. Um, and they had probably a 40 meter, 50 meter side cut radius, virtually no side cut. And so in my time, I was lucky enough to be part of the side cut revolution, which, you know, K2 and Elan really started with the K24 and the SCX. So all of a sudden they were building side cut so that skiers could, you know, carve a perfect turn, like really snowboard kind of brought it to light. Uh, Alpine racing snowboards had these incredible turn radiuses where you could carve a 10 meter turn perfectly arced. So skiing took a page out of that book, the K24, uh, the SCX, and then everybody jumped on board, uh, rousing all included with the 10.4 and the 9.9. So being a part of the side cut revolution was a pretty special time. It really made skiing easier for most people. Um, and then fast forward a little bit, you know, there's always evolution going on in binding technology and boot technology. The plastics were getting better. So that was pretty interesting. But then, you know, another fairly significant revolution, not evolution, was the camber rev revolution. And I think we, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Shane, not only for the, you know, humorous and incredible athlete that he was, but, you know, almost as a joke or a dare, he skied, you know, a big face on a pair of water skis. And I think everybody took a page out of that book and Ballant was the first to step to it with a spatula. And that was really the beginning of this, you know, camber and, and rocker revolution. And, you know, look where we are today. The, uh, the rocker profiles uh, from very moderate flat camber skis to full banana rocker and everything in between. So for me to be able to experience and have been a part of on the product side, the side cut revolution, uh, and then the rocker camber revolution was, it was a pretty special time. Okay. So this is not a gear 30 episode, but we'll have you put your product designer hat on for a minute. Let's say if you had to pick one of these things, you can make a ski that just has more side cut, or you can start to get into shorter length skis or you can get into wider skis, or you get a ski that doesn't have much side cut and is still pretty long, but it's tip and tail rockered. As the Rossignol group was doing its own internal testing, which of those elements did you guys think, this is the thing that primarily is making skiing easier or better or more fun, et cetera? Uh, that, that's a really tough question. I think early on, uh, the, si the side cut was revolutionary for sure. And that came first. Um, so, uh, but to answer your question, if you could only have one element, um, I, I think I really have to, um, I, I, for sure it's width and rocker profile. Those two things, D the wider skis for flotation and the camber profile would make all the difference in the world. And actually on those skis, too much side cut made the skis want to climb back up the hill and they were very uncomfortable. So I would take a ski with virtually no side cut. If it was wide and you could build in the right rocker profile, you've got a winner. Since I agree with that, I'm <laughs> going to say that's the correct answer. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. So, I passed yeah. the test. Yeah, that's right. So we, we'll, keep, we'll keep going here. B plus. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about look 
look pivots are still a binding that are fiercely loved by a number of people. Uh, and yet I'm not sure that people know all that much about look. Talk to me a little bit about that company or, or the look pivot binding in particular. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, uh, Retention is everything, especially for the you know core skiers. You want your skis on your feet, but when when it goes terribly wrong, you'd rather not go uh, you know spend time in the OR and in rehab. So, you know, release versus retention was always a thing, and either the the in the early days at Look with the original Look Nevada, and if you look at that binding, you know, on in the museums. It really hadn't changed that much. It was a turntable heel, it had a short mounting zone, and it had a pretty powerful toe for transmission of energy. And, you know, when you get it right, you get it right. You know, when they designed the wheel, it was round, it rolled, it didn't <laughs> need to be redeveloped. You know, there was no oval shape that was going to outpace it. So I think the look uh, team got it right in the early days. And that design, those basic design parameters have lived longer than almost any other technology that I can think of. And I, I think it really you know, goes back to one, that binding with a short mounting zone respects the ski's natural flex. So you work hard to develop a ski with a profile and uh, you know, a camber profile, both static and dynamic, meaning when you're skiing on a ski, it goes into reverse camber and you don't wanna create that flat spot underneath the foot. So I think that binding respected that. There were other products that did a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, the marker MRR for one back in the day, that Rotomat. But the the turntable, the the look pivot was was the binding. I mean, it dominated on the World Cup. And if you look at the Freeride World Tour today, if you look at you know World Cup racing, if you look at free skiers around the world, that is the binding of choice. I think the other thing about the turntable heel that people may or may not realize is one of the most important factors with that binding is that it really controls the pivot point on the boot when it's releasing. Meaning in a normal system, uh, a traditional step-in heel, when you have a twisting load that's applied, the, the pivot point can move around because the heel is not going to turn. It's not going to rotate with it. With a turntable heel, it actually facilitates and controls the boot's exit. So it controls the pivot point. And by not having as much friction back there on the brake treadle and on the you know heel piece housing, that release was controlled. So there's no loads like that that happen in you know normal skiing. So when you put that kind of twisting load on a ski and uh, a binding system, then you know something's going wrong. And that's why I think that we always said release versus retention. How can you have maximum retention and also release when you need it? And I think that turntable platform really delivered that in spades. And I think the test results uh, would prove that as well. So you're at the Rosignal Group for almost 25 years, literally half your life. And then there's a pivot. Speaking of pivots. Oh, nice segue. You're, you're welcome. I'm a pro. Talk to me about this shift. In January, uh, January 1, 2019, I left the Rosignol Group after half my life uh, to go embark on a new career in the whiskey business. Uh, I've lived locally here in Vermont for the past 21 years. I've always been super interested in the spirits and beer game. Um, and this opportunity came along. 
And it was an amazing opportunity, but having spent half my life at the Rosignol Group and in snow sports, it was, it was a pretty tough decision to, to leave, right? I could have, you know, ride out the last 10 years of my career, would have been easy, but I've never taken the easy path, really. And with my passion for spirits and with this opportunity, I decided to embark on a new journey. So here we are at Whistle Pig, uh, which is a rye distillery, a custom, you know, or a craft rye distillery in, in Shoreham, Vermont. And, you know, I made, made a leap. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. This place is pretty incredible. So we're sitting here on a very green 600-acre farm. And uh, I have been getting the deep dive on this place. And uh, it's just been absolutely fascinating. And... For those of us who maybe have a thing for whiskey, it really is like, it's just like kid in the candy store type of thing. I think though, to just back up for a second, I think some people perhaps might be surprised to hear that there's a whiskey maker in Vermont. Yeah, it's interesting here, especially for rye, you know, uh, there's a couple of strains of rye. Uh, that grow really well in the northern latitudes and the uh, the founding father of Whistlepig distilleries you know decided that they were going to take a crack at it here and they bought an old dilapidated dairy farm and they retooled it and turned it into a whiskey distillery and that was 2007 when they started and it's been a pretty epic run since then for them so they've done a lot of a lot of incredible things they're the they're a darling brand if you haven't had the chance to uh, taste whistle pig hopefully you will soon uh, i'll let you speak more to that because it'll feel like it's uh, bought and paid for if i talk too much about it but that was one of the reason i made the jump to be honest um part of it was i felt like i'd i'd done everything i could do in snow sports i'd been been a part of some amazing revolutions with, you know, as we talked about side cut and camber and binding and boot technology and the migration to the back country and pin bindings. And um, thank God we didn't have to spend too much time on frame bindings. Uh, they worked, but, you know, if you look at the product now, so f for me, I felt like I'd done all that I could do personally and professionally in snow sports. And I felt like it was going to be more of the same and I'm not really a more of the same type of guy. I'm always looking for something, you know, what's new, what's next, where are we going, what can we do? And so when this opportunity presented itself, there was no question in my mind and it wasn't a wholesale change. It wasn't like I'd really, it wasn't like I'd never thought of this. And as a matter of fact, about 10 years ago, about the same time that Whistlepig was really starting to happen in Vermont, a friend of mine and I, uh, you know, had written a little business plan and we thought about starting a small spirits company. Um, and it was going to be, you know, to be honest, it was going to be a maple flavored bourbon, which I still think would have done pretty well. But of course, we didn't have the time, effort, energy, the funding to do it. So, of course, it was more just a, it was a pipe dream on some level. But I'd always looked at the space, you know, what was going on in beer, the craft beer culture in Vermont was incredible. You know, I, pa I passed on a couple opportunities in, you know, microbrew, in the microbrew space. And again, so keeping an eye on the space and when the Whistlepig opportunity presented itself, it was, it, was an, it was a hard decision, but it was a no-brainer. And so the Whistlepig farm slash distillery, this place where we're currently sitting, 
It's literally eight miles from your house. Yeah, we were just over at my house. It's, uh, it's eight miles. <laughs> I got to meet your four dogs. <laughs> four dogs and a wife. Uh-huh. So yeah, uh, not a lot happens in Vermont without the neighbors knowing. So they don't talk much about it, but everybody knows what's going on. So Whistlepig Distillery started. It was an old dilapidated dairy farm. Uh, wasn't much to look at in the early days, but quite quickly they started coming online. The house got repaired, the barn got retooled, uh, the distillery you know, started happening. They converted the dairy barn into a bottling plant. And I started hearing a little bit of buzz about it. So obviously you have to sample the whiskeys, which I did and was quite impressed. Um, and then, but fast forward 10 years later, um, really, they, they've done some amazing things. The Whistlepig is a darling brand. There's something going on right now. They're calling it the rye renaissance. All of the early cocktails were based on rye, not bourbon, you know, not American whiskeys. They were all rye based. If you look at the old cocktail books, all the classics were built on a rye platform. So Dave Pickrell, the master distiller, uh, he actually worked at Maker's Mark for 13 years. Um, Dave, unfortunately, just passed away this past November, but Whistlepig was his darling. It was his, uh, you know, it was his love. So he built the distillery and his goal was to deliver to the market 100% rye spirit in a variety of proofs and flavor profiles. And so he did that. And one of the last things he wanted to do was you know, make sure that, um, you know, Whistlepig is a luxury rye, it's a higher price point, but Dave really wanted to deliver to the market a price point rye that would be great for cocktails. So if you see the name out there, Piggyback, that is, it's a Whistlepig, you know, it's Whistlepig Piggyback. And that was Dave's dream to be able to deliver, you know, a $45, $49 bottle of straight rye age statement, which we're just launching in States right now. I think the thing that has been pretty eye-opening to me. I mean, obviously what we do at Blister is we kind of dive down the rabbit hole when it comes to skis or bindings or mountain bikes or whatever, but it's like we've we've dived down a ton of different rabbit holes here in the last two days, whether it's talking about finishing processes or blending or wood and barrels and on and on and temperatures. And so uh, it's been a fun education. And and I, out of curiosity, like I want to go further on this. And so we'll see, we're, we're, we're doing a little scheming and uh, seeing what we might come up with on this front. More to come. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. The process, I think the the distillation process, and you know, we have something here we call seed to glass, which is, he mentioned we're on a, you know, a five, six, 700 acre farm here. We grow our own rye, uh, the rye gets gristed, we you know, cook it and distill it and barrel it and bottle it all on the farm. And that's you know, pretty unique. And I think when you dive down into any aspect of all of those things, whether it's our grain, our fields, our process, our beautiful copper pot column stills, uh, you know, Vermont oak, Vermont water, all of the things that we're able to do here in this beautiful little hamlet of Shoreham, which is really at the end of a dirt road, there is nothing going on down here. Whistlepig is really the only thing happening. But if you dive down into any aspect of the distillation process, it's really interesting and really exciting. And at the end of the day, we make a product that is, you know, it's almost as fun as skiing, right? I mean, I think <laughs> drinking and skiing have always gone kind of kind of hand in hand, yeah. right? Apres is a thing. Apres is a thing. Well, listen, thank you. Uh, this has been fun, and uh, 
Yeah, I, I think what did we talk till I think two a.m. or something last night or yeah, maybe later two thirty a.m. down the rabbit hole. That was down the rabbit hole, and uh, so I'm glad I got you to agree to put a little bit of this on tape and uh, more to come. We, I think I think we're going to have to do a whiskey review here at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe right now. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. It is uh, definitely time for a whiskey. Yeah. So. We'll see you later. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Jason for the conversation and for providing a truly great time at Whistlepig. If you want to learn more about Whistlepig, you can go to whistlepigwhiskey.com and we will talk to all of you again next week where we've already banked another really great conversation with someone who I am now literally convinced is the most versatile skier in the world. No joke. So be sure to subscribe for free to the Blister Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and we will talk to you again next week.